0: This week's episode is presented by 1895 Films and our content partners, Peter Hamilton's Documentary Business, a newsletter for documentary professionals, and Sunnyside of the Dock, the international marketplace for documentary and narrative experiences, coming to La Rochelle, France in June 2022. On the night of December 6th, 1941, Harry B. Soria Sr. had a sore throat. That could be a problem for the most popular DJ on Honolulu's largest radio station, KGU.
1: He did his Voice of Hawaii show uh, from the studios in in KGU.
0: That's Harry B. Soria Jr., son of Harry Sr. There are a lot of Harry Soria's in this story.
1: And uh, he wasn't feeling good. He had a sore throat. So instead of driving all the way home to his houseboat, he um, stayed at his parents' house. In the Punahou area, and then he woke up in the morning, and there was bombs going off down, you know, way down the way at Pearl Harbor. He went up on the roof and saw what was happening, and he uh, quickly realized, okay, I'm now activated. In one day, he went from being the top radio personality in Hawaii to a secret censorship. Uh, director, and that changes life.
0: I'm Tobiah Black, and this is Artifactual from 1895 Films. A few years ago, 1895 Films made a documentary about Pearl Harbor for a Smithsonian Channel series we were doing called The Lost Tapes. We were gathering any radio news reports we could find from the day of the attack on Pearl Harbor. December 7th, 1941. And at the National Archives, we found this one report that was pretty incredible. It was a live broadcast during the bombing from a Hawaiian radio station called KGU. The sound is fuzzy, but I think it's worth it to hear a pretty big chunk of it. One, two, three,
2: four. Hello, NBC. Hello, NBC. This is KGU in Honolulu, Hawaii. I am speaking from the roof of the Advertiser Publishing Company building. We have witnessed this morning a distant view, a brief battle off Pearl Harbor, and a severe bombing of Pearl Harbor by enemy planes, undoubtedly Japanese.
0: The whole thing only lasts about two minutes, but I couldn't believe it wasn't more well known. And strangest of all, the operator at the telephone company cuts into the live report. She says she needs the line for an emergency call. Uh, the Navy and Army appear now to have the air and the sea under
2: control. Uh just a minute, the I have a second please. This, 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 this is the telephone company, the chief operator. Yes. Uh we uh, try to get through on an emergency call. Could you tell us? Well, we're talking to New York now.
0: And then it ends. That's it. What could be more important than a live broadcast of one of the most significant events of the 20th century? A few weeks later, for the same documentary, I happened to contact a Hawaii radio personality, Harry B. Soria Jr., who you heard talking about his dad at the beginning of the episode. He has a radio show called Territorial Airwaves I had found online that broadcasts recordings of old Hawaiian music. I was trying to find some audio that might give a general sense of the time and place, and I thought Harry B., as he's known, might know where to look, a weather report or a local news item from the 1930s or 40s, something like that. And while I was talking to him, I mentioned this live KGU broadcast from the attack on Pearl Harbor and its strange ending. Harry B. said he knew the recording. In fact, he said, not only did he know it, his dad, Harry Soria Sr., had been the one who pulled the plug on the call. I reached Harry B. Soria Jr. at his home just outside Honolulu to see if he would tell me the whole story. Hello? Hello? Hi, Mr. Soria.
1: Hey, hi, Toby. How are you? It's our typical busy day. We're supposed to be retired, but
0: there's things going on all day long. The Soria family traced their roots back to Chicago, but they've been in Hawaii ever since Harry B.'s grandfather, yet another Harry Soria, brought the family there at the beginning of the 20th century. This home is built on a, a slope. This valley is very green and lush. It's a
1: deep, narrow valley that goes way back and it's famous for its different climates within that one valley. So if I go to one side of the house, I can look out and I can see all the way to Waikiki and uh, the hotels and so forth, the skyline. And if I turn to the other side of of the house, I look up into the valley and see all the high
0: mountains and the rain clouds. And it's there in Hawaii just about 100 years ago that Harry B.'s dad, Harry Sr., first encountered radio. So my father is in high school.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is 1920. One afternoon, he came home, back to the cottage in Waikiki, and there was the Navy guy who lived in the cottage next to them in the stream, stringing all this copper wire back and forth between these two big trees. My dad said, what what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm making an antenna. They went to his little cottage, into the kitchen, and uh, the radio man, it turns out he was the radio man on a Navy ship, he took the um, earphones for his crystal set, and he put them into a coffee cup, where they resonated and turned into a semblance of a speaker and suddenly dad heard the guy say this is KDKA, of the
2: westinghouse electric and manufacturing company in east pittsburgh pennsylvania we shall now broadcast the election returns <clears throat> and in
1: 1920 that
0: was a mind blower by 1922 hawaii had its first commercial radio station kgu And in the following years, another station, eventually called KGMB, also emerged. In the early 1930s, Harry Sr. knocked on the door of KGMB.
1: My father was so enthralled that he went to the smaller of the two radio stations, KGMB, and um, applied and got
0: a job as a radio announcer. And uh, dad was very quickly successful. The only problem was that Harry Sr.'s father, that other, other Harry Soria who had brought the family to Hawaii, had already been working for a few years as an ad salesman for KGMB's competitor, KGU.
1: My grandfather realized, hey, I got something on my hands here. So he went to his pal, the owner of KGU, and he said, hey, listen, I can package shows featuring my son. And so Harry Sr. went to go work at KGU. He did a show called Going to Town with Harry Soria, and he did a show in the evening called The um, Voice of Hawai'i. This is the voice of Hawai'i.
3: These early stations, it wasn't some guy laid back talking uh, into a microphone.
0: That's radio historian Tom Lewis.
3: It was a man dressed Mm. in evening dress. Uh, you had to dress up if you were broad, a broadcaster. Um, and if you had a singer on, if you were a woman, she would be wearing an, an evening dress. Uh, if if it were a man, he would be wearing a, a tuxedo. Uh, and because you had an obligation, because you were going into the intimacy of per, a pe- person's house, you had to dress for the occasion. You
1: know, the voice of Hawaii was... A- Trans Pacific broadcast, and so he was broadcasting from the studio of KGU in Honolulu, and uh, then it would be put over the national for United States and Canada for the NBC network, and so it became a huge national show every Saturday night.
0: KGU operated out of a building owned by one of Hawaii's major newspapers, the Honolulu Advertiser.
1: It was a three-story building that still stands. It was uh, very gaudy and uh, gilded. There were high ceilings and archways and columns, you know, Roman columns. And All in all, it was a pretty good life. He had found a houseboat just offshore. It had a, you
0: know, kitchen and so forth. By now, it was the late 1930s, and World War II was beginning to break out in Europe. A European war may have felt very distant to a radio DJ living on a houseboat in Hawaii, but when Germany and Italy signed the tripartite agreement with Japan in 1940, it was suddenly a lot closer. Hawaii had been at the center of a geopolitical conflict between the U.S. and Japan for a century.
4: Way back in in the middle of the 19th century, both Japan and the United States had looked on the Hawaiian Islands as a strategic item to seize. It just so happens we got there first. Uh, My name's Robert J. Hanyok. I'm a former historian with the federal government. Uh, I worked uh, at the National Security Agency for 32 years in a variety of uh, skills and uh, subject matter, which I can't talk about.
0: But I can't talk about my my time as a historian. And by 1940, Hawaii, and in particular, a shallow lagoon on Oahu, which Hawaiians called Momi, or Waters of Pearl, had become a major U.S. naval base.
4: And the Japanese Navy took a look at the buildup of US, uh, U.S. naval resources, which had begun in 19 mid-1940 with the passage of the Two Ocean Navy Act. And they took one look at the... Projections of American strength, and they realized that by 1943, if nothing happened, if there was no fighting, if nothing happened, by 1943, their Navy would be seriously
0: outmanned, outgunned. So some sort of conflict with Japan seemed possible. Enough so so that some Americans living on the Hawaiian Islands, like Harry Soria Sr., began to do some light training.
1: And so a lot of the business people in town were being secretly recruited by naval intelligence to train Tuesday nights in downtown Honolulu uh, at a location that's now called the Iolani Barracks, big old stone castle looking thing. And um, they would meet there in classrooms.
0: One of those recruits was Harry Sr., once a week, he would go to the headquarters of Navy intelligence where they began to train him in a skill that may have seemed relevant to someone who worked in broadcasting, censorship.
4: Having a censor uh, probably was uh, not unusual considering the situation in Hawaii, that it was basically uh, an island with a huge naval, ba- <laughs> naval base and a number of army bases and airfields around, that basically Hawaii was just a large military facility.
0: But an actual attack on Hawaii, or anywhere else, was not on anyone's radar.
4: Hawaii was considered, at that point, uh, fairly safe. Uh, The American strategist in the Navy and American Naval Intelligence looked at the Japanese Navy at the time and said, well, they're just not capable of doing this. They're not capable of launching a major strike. And that's where Yamamoto's idea for Pearl Harbor was the complete
0: Flipping over the apple cart. At the end of November, the Japanese fleet began to sail across the Pacific towards Hawaii.
1: And the ironic thing is, um, as the Japanese approached in their battleships and aircraft carriers, they followed the civilian radio station signals to hone in on where Honolulu was located.
4: It was standard operating procedure for the commercial radio stations in Hawaii to broadcast music at night as a beacon for the long-range aircraft flying into Hawaii. Well, the Japanese did the same thing. They were flying in too using the uh uh the signal from the commercial stations that morning using those those signals to home in on Hawaiian Islands from the north.
1: Saturday night, what was on the biggest strongest radio station in the territory of Hawaii? Of the two stations that were there, it was KGU, Voice of Hawaii, Harry B. Soria Sr. So, the irony was that they used Dad's show to follow in. Direct from Honolulu, Hawaii, from one end of the USA to the other, comes Aloha from the... And on December 6, 1941... He did his Voice of Hawaii show uh, from the studios in KGU, and uh, then he wasn't feeling good. He had a sore throat. So instead of driving all the way home to his houseboat, he um, stayed at his parents' house uh in the Punahou area and then he woke up in the morning and there was bombs going off down
0: you know way down the way at Pearl Harbor and he didn't know what was going on. Here's historian Robert Hanyok again.
4: It completely baffled the Americans as Joe Rochford said we didn't know the Japanese were coming until the bombs were being dropped on Pearl Harbor. So that's that's essentially uh, how well it worked. It was a
1: complete surprise. He went up on the roof and saw what was happening, and he uh, quickly realized, okay, I'm now activated automatically into the Navy. So he uh, put on his clothes, and he got this special badge he had.
0: Harry Soria Sr.'s first job, once he saw those plumes of smoke rising from Pearl Harbor, was to report to the Mutual Telephone Exchange to monitor any calls coming in or out of the island of Oahu.
1: There was only two long-distance radio phone operators. He, his job was to screen every single call that went through these two operators and disconnect anything which he felt was inappropriate. And there was one girl on each side of the, uh, the aisle. He would straddle in the aisle between the two operators listening on two headphones and if he heard something that shouldn't be allowed he would just reach over and unplug the circuit and the phone would go dead if you've ever watched an old movie where the operator has these big phono plugs and plugs them into um, the wall and then when they're disconnected they un they pull it out and it's you know <laughs> big big noise and
0: and as Harry Sr. is standing there between the two switchboard operators with a set of headphones pressed to each ear, he hears a call.
2: One two three four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One moment, please. One, two, three, four. Hello, NBC. Hello, Monolulu,
0: the call is coming from KGU, the station where Harry Sr. is a star DJ, and it's going out to NBC affiliates across the country.
2: I am speaking from the roof of the Advertiser Publishing Company building. We have witnessed this morning a distant view, a great battle off Pearl Harbor, and a severe bombing
1: off Pearl Harbor by... There was an interviewer trying to call and get a live report
0: from Hawaii over the the NBC network, and that was not cool. Now, we have no idea who this announcer was, what his name was, or anything. But if he worked at KGU, Harry Sr. must have known him. He probably knew him as as a kid. Oh, it's that kid, the weekend kid
1: who didn't really, wasn't supposed to talk on the microphone. He was just supposed to make sure things were running well, that, uh, you know, the transmitter was operational, things like that, you know, minor things, off-the-air things. And suddenly he was doing a live report to New York City, to NBC.
2: The city of Honolulu has also been attacked and considerable damage done. This battle has been going on for nearly three hours. One of the bombs dropped within 50 feet of KTU tower. It is no joke. It is a real war.
0: It's all a little hard to hear, but he just said, it is no joke. It is a real war. We cannot estimate yet how much damage has been done, but it has been a very severe attack. Uh, the Navy and
2: Army appear now to have the air and the sea under control. Uh, just a minute, of me. i interrupt this. a second, please. This is the telephone company, the chief operator. Yes? Uh, we uh, try to get you on an emergency call. Could you turn Well, in, we're uh, talking to New York now. This is... Line 4, L-O-N-D-C. Is more ready. One, two...
1: didn't like what he was hearing and made the decision to cut him off which you know pretty heavy when you that's been your job your company your employer for years and suddenly you have to treat them as um, someone you can't be trusted because the climate has changed overnight
0: radio historian tom lewis
3: KGU was a NBC affiliate, and NBC was really late to the ball when it came to news reporting compared to CBS. It was a day late and a dollar short.
0: CBS's news division had risen to prominence a year earlier on the back of Edward R. Murrow's live reports during the London Blitz in 1940, a situation not totally dissimilar to what was happening in Hawaii at that moment. If the KGU announcer on the roof of the advertiser building that day hadn't heard Murrow's broadcasts, which he may have, it's at least likely that he was aware of them and of the fame they had brought Murrow and his team. No
3: doubt uh, that announcer was uh, chagrined because uh, he missed the chance to become the Edward Murrow of the Hawaiian Islands. I can imagine he had a good deal of CBS
0: envy at that point. Harry Soria Sr. monitored calls for the rest of that day. And soon after, he was deployed to various hotspots across the South Pacific. That Voice of Hawaii broadcast on the night of December 6th, 1941. That was the last time Harry Sr., who had fallen in love with radio as a teenager, when he heard that voice from Pittsburgh vibrating out of his neighbor's coffee cup in Waikiki in 1920. That was the last time he was ever on the air.
1: So he, in one day, he went from being the top radio personality in Hawaii to a secret censorship uh, director, and that changed his life. And for the rest of the war, he was in the Navy intelligence as a censor. When he came back, he was no longer on the air. He was an older man, so never again on the radio, and pretty much left everything behind and pursued a new lifestyle.
0: No more DJing, no more houseboat, Harry Sr. got married, and he and his wife had a kid.
1: Aloha, I'm
0: Harry B. Soria Jr. and I was born in 1948. And it's probably inevitable that Harry B., who we've been listening to this whole time, would end up doing what he does. Hawaii 105 KINE, the Hawaiian music
1: station. Start your workday with 105 minutes of commercial-free music every morning at 8:30 and 50 minutes. I have been broadcasting the vintage Hawaiian music radio show known as
0: Territorial Airways. Harry Senior, of course, listened to Harry Junior's show every week. My mother told me that he got
1: a, a real thrill of um, listening to me reliving his life because I I always addressed it as a celebration of his life and accomplishments so he really enjoyed it and then he would critique me later and say you know you kept saying that these songs were classic not every song could be a classic you know you gotta use other words he died in 1990 so I had uh, you know uh, in-house training of a critic who was listening to everything I did on the radio.
0: It's now 2021, more than 100 years since Harry Sr. heard that first radio broadcast resonating through the headphones in his neighbor's coffee cup. The speakers may have changed, but we're still listening. Thanks. Artifactual is written and produced by me, Tobias Black, Our producer is Will Depanier. Our executive producers are Tom Jennings and Ellen Farmer at 1895 Films. Fran from 17th Street Audio did the sound design and mixing for this episode. If you want to learn more about our documentaries, you can find us on Twitter at 1895films or at 1895films.com.